he is ready to use even nuclear weapon just to keep Russia for himself. Greetings and welcome to Kickback. This is Matthew Stevenson, and I'm glad to say that today we're going to be continuing our special series on kickback in which we feature experts on corruption, anti-corruption, who can speak to the current war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and how that catastrophe relates to issues uh, of the fight against corruption. In today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Oksana Nesterenko who is an associate professor of law and the executive director of the Anti-Corruption Research and Education Center at the National University of Kyiv Mohila Academy. Uh, Oksana, thank you so much. I know this is a very difficult time uh, for you, your family, uh, and everyone you know back in Ukraine. So thank you very much for taking time to speak to me today on the podcast. Thank you, Matthew. It is my pleasure to be here. Perhaps we could start our conversation by you telling me and telling our listeners a little bit more about you and your background before the current crisis, uh, which we're going to talk about in a moment. I know that you're one of the leading academic experts in Ukraine who, who focuses on issues of corruption, anti-corruption. So you can say a little bit more about your interest in that topic and what kinds of work you've been doing, both as an academic researcher, but then also uh, as, as an advocate on uh, the fight against corruption in Ukraine. Yeah, uh, I'm an expert in, uh, how you mentioned, anti-corruption, particularly um, I focus uh, on whistleblower protection, freedom of information, government transparency and government accountability as well, and anti-corruption policy. Uh, in fact, uh, the last years I was conducted numerous uh, research in this Field and also uh, developed a law on whistleblower protection in Ukraine, access to public information, and other uh, related laws. And uh, also, actually, I teach um, I teach the course on access to public information, constitutional law, and uh, uh, and I do some advocacy uh, for law draft law that. Uh, I, uh, I was talking. Yeah. Great. So I want to ask you a little bit more, maybe a little bit later in the conversation about some of the, some of the things that you've done on anti-corruption reform, but obviously the thing that's the foremost of everyone's mind right now is the war, which is obviously very upsetting. It's caused enormous human suffering and loss of life. One thing that I know that uh, you've discussed in your writings and in some of our conversations that I thought would be useful to explore uh, for our listeners as, as maybe a first uh, pass at understanding the current conflict has to do with this idea that what's happening in uh, Ukraine right now is not just uh, not just a military conflict between two countries, though of course it is that, but it also really has to do with the clash of values. And again, I know this is something we've talked about, written about a little bit, but can you say a bit more about what you um, mean and how that clash of values relates maybe to the background context or some of the underlying causes for the, for the war. Yeah, uh, yeah. In fact, uh, uh, yes, uh, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's uh, it's war about values. Uh, why? Because uh, 
Putin regime is authoritarian regime that needs to be authoritarian regime because corruption. In fact, it's uh, how I mentioned kleptocratic regime. They use all sources that actually uh, belong to Russian society for just a small circle, yeah, for their own circle, Putin, uh, uh, Putin family and people who are around him. And uh, in fact, they like that is why they needed to eliminate all uh, political rights, like uh, for, uh, like uh, freedom, press, uh, expressions, like associations, like no any free media in Russia. Yeah, how we see no free market, like anything. And uh, uh, and at the same time, uh, Ukraine is liberal democratic country. Definitely, Ukraine has very high level corruption. That is like Ukraine needs this kind of thinking, like mine, anti corruption social education center. But we have free election, we have free media, we uh, our freedom of information are protected. We have very high level transparency and accountability of Ukrainian government. And in fact, it's a big threat for Putin regime. Why? Because Ukrainians and Russians uh, have the similar cultural, historical background. A lot of Ukrainians speak Russians. And in fact, uh, when Russians will see that there's a similar people don't uh, like don't suffering from dic dictatorship and have free election, can elect any uh, leader, they can fight for their uh, rights, They uh, the government is uh, accountable, uh, they have a very high level of transparency, they just think, okay, so what we need to do? And you know what is the answer, you just need to eliminate dictatorship. So this is really very annoyed issue for for Putin. Actually, he is not first, you know, like any strong uh, country, it does not matter, uh, liberal country or dictatorship. Uh, if they see other model around you, around this country, they would like just to move border. Like you remember, US uh, fought very seriously with any communistic regime around the United States, because in this way, they protected like, uh, um, protected, pro protected like free market, yeah, from communist re regime around. Uh, and at the same time, Putin would, wouldn't like to see any democratic regime around Russia in the region, because it's really threat for him. So, and because really he tried this all this, like this is long period of time, he, he tried to control uh, control Ukraine, took over Ukraine. Finally, he failed. Like if you talk, I mean, he tried to influence using like political uh, uh, political tools and actually corruption as well. He just uh, uh, bought some Ukrainian politicians, but finally he failed. So, and un only one way that he he thought considered that is like real war. So that is why I call this war, it's war for values. And even not for values like in Ukraine, but in regional and maybe even in the world. Because uh, for others, some dictators around the world, it would be very, 
like like example okay you can use you can use uh, your army uh, uh, to just to stop uh, any democratic reforms you know in in another country so i mean it can be very serious threat for democratic values around the world even not only in europe so that's fascinating it's very helpful i hear you um, in addition to making the general case that this war is really a war about values, making a couple of intriguing and provocative claims uh, that I want to explore a bit more. So one is that it's not just that this is a war about values in the sense that it pits uh, a corrupt authoritarian dictatorship against a country that, while still not a perfect democracy and still not free for corruption, is basically a liberal democracy. It's not. It's that, but it's not just that. You, were, you also suggested that this clash of values was a reason for the war. It's not just the war is, in fact, a conflict between an authoritarian country and a democratic country, but that this divergence in values, this divergence in paths between what would otherwise be these very similar countries of Russia and Ukraine is, is a cause of the war. Um, and you also you made a second claim, which is related and also very interesting, and it relates to your field of expertise and mine, um, and that's that part of this threat, this cultural threat that Ukraine's democratization posed to, to the Putin regime had to do with corruption. You, you indicated that one of the reasons uh, that not just Putin, but the people around Putin want to maintain such a tight grip on power is because of corruption, is because of theft, kleptocracy, all of this stuff. Um, and there's, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but there seemed to be this suggestion that um, more than necessarily ideology or a lust for power for its own sake, there was this idea that Ukraine's democratization might inspire forms of liberalization in Russia that would be bad for corrupt actors. So in this sense, corruption isn't just a side, side note to the, the current war. It's actually pretty central to understanding what's going on. I'd love to unpack that and explore both of those claims. Uh, let me start with the first one. Um, it's it's really interesting. I've heard this from other specialists that we've interviewed on the, on the podcast and other people have had the opportunity to talk to. It's a little bit um, different from the mainstream accounts, even in the West, that you hear about the reasons for the war. So I would say one explanation that's very popular um, in some quarters is that Russia perceived Ukraine as a security threat. There were concerns that Ukraine wanted to join NATO. Uh, there were concerns that uh, military bases would be, you know, NATO bases would be stationed in Ukraine. It's, uh, Ukraine would be more supplied with weapons. It would be a security threat. There's another uh, argument that seemed consistent with that speech that Putin gave before the war, that it really is a kind of about a romantic notion of reviving Russia's sphere of influence as a great power. Um, and that it wanted to assert dominance over Ukraine, basically because people, some people in Russia, possibly including Putin, really just don't believe that Ukraine is actually a separate independent country. Um, so, so I think some people hearing your explanation, the explanation that I've heard from other uh, experts, that really uh, it wasn't that uh, Ukraine posed any kind of direct security threat to Russia, but it, it was that Ukraine posed this kind of cultural or indirect political threat. Um, some people find that hard to believe, hard to believe that uh, Putin would launch this aggressive 
war of, of, of conquest or whatever it is based on this notion that uh, the example that Ukraine was setting could be a threat to the Putin regime. So, so I'm actually sympathetic to the point of view you articulated before, but, but if some of our listeners fall into that skeptical category, even if they believe the larger point that, of course, this war pits a country with one set of values against another set of values. I can, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, yeah, yeah, I yeah. can explain. Yeah, I mean, actually, like, this is, I mean, uh, it's actually everything is connected. And uh, that is, uh, in fact, um, we can explain why Putin is, uh, like, scary about NATO. He not scary this NATO really, like, uh, can have any threat for, like, Russian, like, state. Yeah, but a threat for his regime, and it's like a different. I mean, in fact, NATO means also standards. And look, for instance, if Ukraine join NATO, Ukraine join European Union, people will see from Russia or Ukrainian Ukrainian experience and think, oh, okay, good, we can have a good life too. And they just uh, come, I mean, uh, go to the street. Do you remember Bologna uh, Square? It's almost, it was like revolution. I mean, actually, like every, like, and just in a couple of years, we had the own revolution again in Ukraine. So, and Putin understands very well. If you, uh, people in Russia inside, again, uh, created new Balotna Square, and, uh, uh, and at the same time, some Ukrainians would like to help them and after that, this is like civil war actually can start in Russia. In these circumstances, really NATO can say, okay, maybe we need to help, maybe not. But the point is, the threat is he thinks that if NATO will be so close to his board and something happen inside Russia, and it definitely will happen because they will see some... Uh, people like the next border have like better life, uh, uh, free life. I mean, uh, they they really in this circumstances he really think about threat from NATO, but not for Russia because actually for Russia it's a good be even a part of NATO. It's a good to have free market, uh, freedom of information. Uh, Etc. Etc. This is, you know, like sign of liberal democratic like regimes. So for Russia, it's a good to be a part of this uh, uh, open uh, open world. I mean, like like you know, like open like to be a part of this liberal democratic world, but not for Putin, because Putin just needs to keep his regime, and his authoritarian regime does not meet with any kind of organizations. And uh, it means that Putin just uh, needs to... The Putin, like, really uh, scary about NATO and any countries who join to NATO and be, like, close to his board. It's true. But it's not threat for Russia. I mean, you know, they, it's like, you know, he uh, replaced, um, you know, he replaced statement. I mean, the truth is NATO is real threat for Putin regime. Yeah? But he said NATO is threat for Russia. So he associated himself with Russia, but it's not true. I mean, I mean, he, we, we, have, we have just associated him with a uh, person who destroyed Russia. It was 
like. Where it's it's still even rich country, but all sources just use for his own circle, for his to buy very uh, very expensive assets. How we see. Exactly. Well, that connects to the second interesting point that you made before that I also wanted to explore, and that's the the corruption dimension of this. So again, this, the, this, these issues are much bigger than just corruption, but I'm a corruption specialist, you're a corruption specialist, so of course we have a particular interest in that. And in your opening um, explanation for what's going on here, you did make this point, and I wanted to, to bring this out a little bit further, about how uh, the, the cultural or political threat that developments in Ukraine pose to the Putin regime do have a lot to do with uh, the corruption of the of the Putin regime, Putin and his associates. And you just mentioned that again at the end of what you were just saying a moment ago. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Again, because I think some of our listeners, while broadly sympathetic to the general points that you're making, might have some instinctive skepticism. Like, is this really about corruption? Is it, would he really go to war for, for that reason? So say, say, can you please say a little bit more about uh... Yeah, I mean, you know, like, it's not like, uh, in fact, look, uh, the Putin really, how I, you know, it's like parallel process uh, started in Russia yet 20 years ago. Uh, He, I mean, from the start, he used uh, this tool to to get some uh, popularity using uh, uh, using force. Yeah, we remember Chechnya after the Georgia, and why? Because actually she used some some statement that came from political sciences. It's true that any any uh, any society that goes through poverty uh, when uh, institutions are weak, I mean, what they need? They need some big idea. Yeah, the big idea about big country. And if you wouldn't like to work on a prosperity, economic prosperity and development, and you just would like to steal assets like all sources for yourself, you just need to create like big idea for society. And in fact, he started to use this from start when he has become a Pre, like uh, president, the president of Russia, and so his goal was definitely. I believe it's just to like only money, because even some people who were around him, like nineteenth uh, when it was like Gekachipe. I mean, this is when KGB tried to return the Soviet Union. When they wanted to involve Putin that time, he said. And it's one of his like colleagues, like after that, an interview said, money, it's time to do money. No, any ideology. Let's to do money. So, I mean, he really, he just like, he carry only about money. And look, his last speech, he was, he had like a jacket for 13 and half thousand dollars. So I mean, he really like like care about money and would like to 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 steal all money from like from Russian society. But what he needs for this, he needs to take his power for forever. In fact, yes. And here it's like he starts this way to create this authoritarian regime. But if you create authoritarian regime, it means and you just and at the same time. You not only would like to be authoritarian, uh, like uh, like dictator, but you would like to steal all sources from your society. So you don't have like sources for development 
you know, infrastructure, uh, infrastructure, like healthcare, etc. I mean, some like, you know, obvious things that people need. And so, I mean, your society is still in poverty. So what you need to do that your society like <laughs> uh, support you, yeah? And don't think about this kind of problem, yeah? Uh, you need to protect your regime. Don't, don't, I mean, don't have some another kind of like democratic, uh, liberal democratic around you. But also you need, you need to create big idea and some create some, something in order that uh, your society, Russian society, uh, do, doesn't think about, about poverty inside Russia. So war is like a good, a, a good way. I mean, we, we saw in, in, in past that a lot of authoritarian uh, regimes actually did it. Uh, but in this case, I mean, why again, it's more than about, I mean, it's not because it's real threat for Russia and for big idea. It's not that really Putin believes in this idea. He just cares about his regime. He just needs to protect his regime, his corrupt regime. And he just used this big idea that Ukraine should become a part of Russia. Because, I mean, because actually, you know, he used different messages. And, you know, I mean, first it's because threat from NATO. Another, Ukraine doesn't have uh, uh, its own history. Another, you are Nazi. Another, uh, you created the nuclear weapon and you're going to attack Russia. So we, we, we like, for this, like, uh, the last, like, a couple of months, we... Uh, we heard a lot of different message came from uh, Russia government. It just changed. So it means that they try to to find a good justification that can be enough for world, you know. But they just failed in this. But I believe that only one justification uh, is he created real corrupt regime. That and any serious corrupt regime cannot be cannot provide public safety, yeah, health, good health care, like quality of life, yeah, economic uh, prosperity uh, for, for big country. And in fact, in this circumstance of your society in poverty, you need to create some big idea for your society and start some war just uh, uh, took uh, his attention away from real. Uh, problems that inside Russia, not outside Russia. So this is really fascinating. I mean, it seems like you're suggesting actually two different mechanisms which are compatible with each other. They're not mutually exclusive, but two different mechanisms through which the corruption of the Putin regime contributed to the, the current uh, yeah. war. One that you mentioned at the outset was that reforms in Ukraine, liberalization, democratization, anti-corruption reform in Ukraine might serve as kind of inspiration to the Russian people, um, and they might kind of rise up and demand reform that would be threatening to Putin's kleptocratic inner circle uh, and his cronies. But then you just suggested another uh, possibility, I just want to make sure I've got this right, that because the regime is so corrupt, despite Russia having certain what you would think of as economic advantages, like access to natural resources and a highly educated population overall and so forth, the country was not developing. If anything, it was moving backwards. And that creates an incentive for someone like Putin to launch a war, kind of like as a distraction. As you say, this is a pattern that we've seen in many countries over the years. If you're weak at home, uh, 
create some foreign threat to try to mobilize your population against them to distract them. I think this is what Alexei Navalny said in his most recent uh, sentencing here. I think that this is this is just an effort to distract the Russian people from the corruption of the Putin regime. Yeah, and you know, another very interesting point. Uh, when we discussed with some my colleague, he also like mentioned, I mean, it's not my idea, but obviously he's right. And actually Putin corrupt regime does not need like development. I mean, why? Because it means uh, middle class, but middle class, uh, any middle class ask for something more than, uh, than, than, than money, you know, and good quality of life. They ask for freedom. Uh, of media, they ask for freedom of associations, like real, yeah, they ask for, like, free elections, because, you know, I mean, uh, any, like, developed society, like, where we have, like, strong middle class, uh, would not like to see one guy, like, 22 years, uh, uh, like, uh, running the country, I mean, I mean, even, you know, even if we, uh, take a look uh, at the history we will see like 22 years come on even kings didn't run like so long <laughs> so i want to ask you all now so about something that's a little bit different but i think it's related and that's uh, developments in ukraine specifically in the anti-corruption side in the lead up to to the current war so um president Zelensky is now internationally famous for his inspira inspirational leadership as, as, a, as a wartime president. Uh, but of course, as you know well, and as I have learned from Ukrainian friends and colleagues, uh, President Zelensky, a former actor, initially ran for president very much on an anti-corruption platform. He, he named his political party after his TV show that was all about an ordinary person who's trying to clean up the corrupt system. Um, that was very much his agenda. From talking to you and other Ukrainian friends and colleagues over the last several years, it sounds like progress has been uneven. Some people give Zelensky some, some pretty high marks for, for making progress. Other people I know in the Ukrainian anti-corruption civil society community are very critical about his close relationships with his own oligarchs and certain reforms installed and so forth. I, I'm curious, especially in the context of this idea that the Putin regime may have viewed developments in Ukraine as a serious kind of political or cultural threat. Uh, your assessment of two things that are related but not exactly the same, was the, how, how much progress was the Zelensky administration making on this corruption, anti-corruption issue? To what extent was his administration following through on the idealistic uh, campaign that he ran and the second question, which is related to that, is how much did that specifically, the, the fact that there was a Ukrainian president who made anti-corruption and fighting the oligarchs, or at least certain oligarchs um, in Ukraine, how much did that specifically worry Putin and the people around him? Uh, you know, like we, uh, um, what really people need to know about us, like experts, yes, that uh, definitely uh, we would like to see like real anti-corruption reforms and definitely like we would like, I mean, and if Zelensky, like he promised a lot of things, he should have followed these things. And the problem was that finally when he was elected, we saw that uh, his, uh, like uh, his direction, not like before, 
when he was for, when he was a candidate for president and definitely like he did something but at the same time we like a civil society we needed to push him and we push him <laughs> seriously and in fact like like any politician i mean zelensky definitely is a politician yeah he needed you know to to took uh, an account uh, opinions all stakeholders and because oligarchs uh, had a serious power he just tried how i see from right now, try to uh, play with like different uh, kinds uh, types of stakeholders. Yeah, with civil society, with oligarchs, like etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And in fact, uh, like we cannot say that actually he really like uh, like he was against reforms. Yeah, like Putin, but he just tried to be like a sneaky guy, like any. Uh, politician first of all like in this kind of uh, uh, countries like Ukraine but anyway we had uh, progress with Zelensky I mean when Zelensky became a president uh, the uh, was war in Ukraine and then post-Soviet Union countries uh, on whistleblower protection was adopted actually like i was so angry i mean i was the uh, author of this draft law but i was so angry because this law protects only like whistleblower who speak out about corruption but other <laughs> whistleblowers needs to, to be protected as well but at the same time it's really strong law yeah uh we like we really was angry on zelensky because this is anti-corruption uh prosecutor office he just didn't have so much to um you don't want to push this as a new election and a lot, like i mean you know like because it's different i mean we have a lot of really corrupt guys and uh, uh, like different interests inside ukraine uh and zelensky he understood i i don't know but he understood that he needs you know to talk to everyone and find some balance because if he if he uh didn't uh, he didn't uh, find uh, this balance. He would be eliminated. Some guys, uh, guys, I believe. I mean, not like a real, you know, like like somebody like kill him. But I mean, like a politician, he can, you know, have a serious threat for his like future. Uh, and uh, and uh, and that is why I believe that we had this dance, you know, different kind of dances. <laughs> And our anti-corruption reform um, were not easy, yeah. And we really pushed uh, him. But you know, if compared with Russia, it's totally different. You know, I mean, uh, in Russian, like everything. Uh, I mean, in Russian, it's um, impossible to find uh, to find the uh, free enforcement agency free from corruption enforcement agents it's uh, it's unbelievable to to see anti-corruption court i mean we have some criticized anti-corruption too but you know like it's a different kind of you know like ukraine between russia and and western country in western country we can say okay um government uh, like corruption is under control yeah in ukraine we cannot say that corruption is under control. We can say we still have a lot of corruption in different areas and we still need to work uh, hard uh, to complete all this anti-corruption reform. But in, in Russia, it's even like never happened. You know, if you run your business in Russia and you don't just 
give some bribes to some prosecutor office, you're just going to have very serious problem for your business. You just, you remember this is Magnitsky case, you know, I mean, no any justice, you know, if you just against uh, like uh, uh, government, it means you're going to just be killed. It's all. It's like corruption in all levels. I mean, and we had in Ukraine like 20 years ago. Right now, it's impossible. Even, you know, our corrupt guys like have like some uh, some job. Okay, come on. Like right now, price mm, is very high. I mean, if you would like to give bribe, <laughs> it's going to be in 10 times more than five years ago because people take money for risk. Mm, uh, in other words, we have progress in anti-corruption uh, reform compared with Russian. So it's totally different level, you know. This is, I mean, in Russian, like it's like like totally corrupt country, like like kleptocratic. It actually captures state, in fact. And and in Ukraine, it just yes, corrupt country that is uh, 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 continue to do reform. And definitely, Zelensky is not like angel, yeah, uh, and. Uh, he, we can like uh, uh, we can convince him. I mean, a lot uh, a lot of uh, like wrong people around him definitely, and he wouldn't like to become an um, enemy for our old oligarchs because they still have like. And some of uh, his steps definitely were were very how to say were very very uh, okay not clever yeah for instance when he uh, like uh, do, adopt uh, this law about the de- oligarchization i mean it's so stupid you just need to ask these guys did they pay all taxes and if not it's already just not oligarchs anymore just like put to prison for don't pay taxes and uh, and other things uh, like this uh, i mean uh, he did like a lot of this is steps that's against constitution and so but at the same time when a civil society when we push him he needed to to do this reform and because like parliament anyway like it's like uh, big support like from his party but anyway it's also like different kind of people you can just go and talk and convince them to to uh, to vote for some uh, a good anti-corruption it's a different i mean in, in russia i mean it's impossible i mean uh, all deputies in russia uh, under putin i mean who were like real against putin he's just in jail or like uh, uh, he's not uh, in this world, he already like passed away. I mean, we know what happened with any real opposition in Russia. It's fascinating. And this is consistent with the points that you were making before. So it wasn't like, I mean, Ukraine wasn't perfect. And Zelensky, uh, you know, again, I, I always hesitate to say anything too critical about him right now because he's been such an inspirational leader in wartime. But, you know, he was, an, he was a politician, as you say. Uh, but as, as I, what I hear you saying is the big difference uh, between Russia and Ukraine is that Ukraine was a relatively open society. Civil society groups, uh, including the ones that you work with, were dissatisfied. Uh, but it's the kind of the job of civil society advocates to always be dissatisfied. And it's the job of the politicians to sort of try to balance competing interests and figure out what's possible. And that's not the case in Russia. As you say, Russia was much more just a, an authoritarian, kleptocratic regime. And I want to come back to that. We're, we're almost out of time. But, but one thing that's uh, interesting, right? So you, as you said earlier... For Putin and a lot of people around him, the the you know his his cronies and, and the so-called oligarchs, though those aren't necessarily exactly the same groups of people as, as other people have spoken to on this podcast have emphasized, is all about the money. 
uh, it seems like they might have, I guess the English expression would be overplayed their hand in the sense that I don't think they expected the, the extent of the sanctions imposed by uh, Western governments on individuals, politicians, oligarchs, and others. So, that, so that's bad. I should say, now we don't know what's going to happen over the, the next several days or weeks. Uh, there's going to be a delay. We're recording this podcast interview on March 19th. So by the time it airs, there might have been other developments. But I guess I wanted to get your perspective on this, because while the the targeted individual sanctions that have been imposed and the general sanctions seem like a step in the right direction, I know there are a lot of people who think, first, even now, um, there's more that should be done uh, with respect specifically to to going after the the dirty money uh, that's, that's coming out of Russia. But second, I know a lot of people for years have been complaining about the so-called enablers or facilitators in wealthy Western countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, or France, or, or any number of other countries. Um, and there have been a lot of calls for, for reform on that score. And again, I'd, I'd be interested in, in your perspective as someone who, I know most, most of your research is focused on domestic uh, anti-corruption reform within Ukraine, but I'd very much like your perspective on these issues about what can or should should be done to crack down on flows of corruptly acquired assets or other kinds of dirty money uh, out of places like Russia or, for that matter, Ukraine um, in other parts of the world. Yeah, actually, look, I mean, uh, it's not even right now, it's not only about even Russia, but also like in Ukraine and other countries like this, political scientists call it neo-colonial regimes. Uh, when, uh, uh, when in fact, corrupt government, yeah, just uh, took uh, sources, money from their own country and invest to, or hide, or just invest to Western economies. And in fact, in these circumstances where our world like a global village, yeah, it's impossible to fight effectively with corruption only like in national level. Definitely only if these corrupt guys will uh, pay this is price, uh, a real price for corruption, uh, we can say that we can change uh, social norms in this kind of society, like Ukrainian society or even like in, in Russian society. Um, it means that like uh, assist recovery is like crucial anti-corruption tool in the world and it's the most difficult actually anti-corruption tool but it's a very important tool and also it's very important uh, don't uh, destroy democracy in western countries because for instance what we see right now my colleague from Seal institute provide some space for me in Prague. So, and the, like Seal Institute, like really uh, has done a great job on like looking for uh, assets. And they, one of the guy of this Seal Institute, he created like map of uh, property of Russian corrupt guys in uh, Karlovy and Prague as well. So what we see, it's a lot of uh, properties money here uh, that came from Russia. And in fact, uh, so, well, I mean, if uh, here, uh, I mean, if Russians, uh, oligarchs, like corrupt officials, 
uh, would not do this. Definitely, they they would. I mean, uh, it's not reason to be corrupt. Definitely, we can say okay, they can invest to Middle East, yeah, from uh, like uh, some countries, like developed countries, Middle East. But anyway, I mean, and it's like more challenge, yeah. But we at uh, we uh, need to start at least from Western countries to be to have more solidarity, more international projects, more. Uh, more international government initiatives to really stop this uh, money laundering in Western countries because it's not only about like how to prevent corruption in Russia or Ukraine and stop war, in fact, <laughs> yeah, but also it's not because, I mean, what we have right now, for instance, even in the United States, a lot of Russian money yeah, and this is Russian money actually undermine like US democracy I mean, it's a strong, still strong, but anyway, it's a big challenge for American democracy. This corrupt money undermine like democracy in Western countries, I mean, European Union countries. And actually, this is money um, right now uh, does not give some more even strong sanctions for, for Russian regime. So, I mean, you know, like everything is connected, like I mentioned before, like uh, Russians, oligarchs like officials uh, stole money from Russia in Western Europe after that use this money to undermine uh, European and US institutions after that to save this money started war with Ukraine after that they become even more crazy because sanctions and uh, they just would like to do what they want because you know like they see that they uh, uh, going to, to to lose this all money and you know this is great case this is one of the board very like expensive like one um, 160 million dollar there's a friend one uh, this is boat was uh, i mean belong, belonged to one of the uh, putin's friends and they actually tried just uh, to destroy that boat before that boat was was arrested you know like could you imagine 160 million dollars and just they didn't want that this is going to like be arrested they wanted to just destroy the boat it means uh, it means uh, this is kind amount of money how many how many they can do for Russian people for this money? Just price of one book. And we know that right now it's already arrested like uh, seven of this kind of votes for this kind of price. And in fact, we can see, in, in fact, because, you know, Transparency International did a lot to push some government to be more serious about this is laundering money and UK as well. And, you know, before European, uh, like, governments didn't, like, I mean, I mean, they don't have strong legislation just to uh, to uh, to think uh, about this. They need to stop this as dirty money. To, to the economies. Uh, and right now we have this war. You know, I mean, it's like everything connected and everything. In fact, they uh, thought, oh, okay, money, it's just money. Uh, money don't smell. And finally, it smells very bad. Because they thought, okay, it can be a good investment to our economy. Okay, it's a good, but right now this is a regime like not under control and uh, everyone is suffering in Europe. I think those are those are some really important points. Maybe a great note on which to end uh, our conversation today. You've been very generous with your time, but I'm glad that you emphasized um, 
the extent to which all of these different issues are, are connected. I think that's one of the things we're trying to uh, explore in this podcast series to get a better understanding of these different issues that might not seem that closely connected really do interrelate. Um, and I also think that that point you're making near the end is really important, that what's happening right now with the war may be getting at least some governments in the West and elsewhere to take these issues more seriously. Uh, I, I'm very hesitant to, to talk about anything good coming out of this horrible tragedy unfolding in Ukraine, but, but maybe finally um, people are beginning to appreciate the extent to which that failing uh, to address these kinds of issues and the role of Western governments and Western institutions in enabling this kind of behavior actually does have a very important connection with, with the, the, the violence and the destruction that we're seeing right now. I think it's a really, really important message. Um, thank you so much. Thank you again. Uh, I know it's a very hard time for you, for all Ukrainian people, um, and it's really uh, great that you're able to, to be able to, to join me on the episode today and share some of your expertise and insights with our listeners. Yeah, and uh, can I make the last point about... Of course, I didn't need to add before you're yeah. ready. Please continue, yes. Yeah, right now, this is war. Mm, this is war. We see, like, I mean, before we discussed it, price of corruption, it's like uh, poverty, yeah, uh, some, uh, but right now we see that real price of the corruption is war, real war, uh, like a thousand of death, uh, infrastructure destroyed, etc., etc., and start from beginning the root of this is money. Some person and people around like this person who just understood they, they don't need some money to steal some money. They can keep all country, yeah, create state capture. And uh, after that, they believe that all country can belong only to them and for forever. And finally, the war, it was only one solution to continue to keep this power. Because anyway, uh, like liberal democratic countries and alliance like NATO, <laughs> I mean, that like enforcement like just was more and more closer to this corrupt regime. So and finally, one decision, it was war. So right now we see how corruption uh, lead to authoritarian regime and authoritarian regime lead and make threat not only for human rights inside country but also for neighbors and even for world because right now what Putin say if you don't listen to me guys I'm going to use nuclear weapon so he like uh, uh, definitely like uh, psychopathic but uh, who really like like so much money and uh, he consider money like a power and finally he he is ready to use even nuclear weapon just to keep Russian for himself and for his soul. So the real price of corruption is war and threat for world. That's a very powerful and sobering message. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for, for delivering that message. And again, thank you. Thank you for your time and for sharing your, your expertise on these issues. I really appreciate you joining the podcast today. Yeah, thank you.
That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Our special mini-series on Ukraine will continue throughout the next weeks. If you want to learn more about Oksana's work, check out the show notes and also use the timestamps in the show notes to navigate through the episode. If you want to support our podcast, please share this episode via social media. To stay updated, follow us on Twitter under at KickbackGAP. As always, Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is produced by Niels Kubis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke. With assistance by Emi Assad and music by Kehan Gokar. Stay safe everyone, until next time.